This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you. Visit it and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. We're right in the middle of a series called Awaken. Last week, we kind of opened this by challenging you to live your lives through a lens that we don't often live with. It's a lens of wonder, wonder awakening faith that God would let us see a world that is not yet in existence and call us to be on a journey with Him, invite us into that journey to help bring things into existence that aren't into existence yet. So for the next few weeks, we're going to uh, kind of examine components of the life that I think God wants to awaken us to. Now, to get started today, I'm going to ask you a question. And as I ask this question, some of you are going to answer. You're going to be very vulnerable and honest. You're going to raise your hand and say, that's me. And when you do that, there are going to be some of us instantly that hate you. I just want to prepare you for the un- oncoming onslaught of dislike that's going to come your way. Because there's some of us that are going to be so envious, so jealous of where you are already in life that it's just going to provoke us to anger. All right? So here's the question. Real simple. How many of you can wake up without an alarm clock? Raise your hand. You wake up every day without an alarm clock. We, there, there are those of us in the room that look at you and think, I, n- I have a friend. It's not me. I'm jealous of you. But I have a friend that hates you. You ever known somebody? They come up to you and be like, you know, I just want to ask for my friend, right? I have this friend who's, I, but I have a friend who, who would dislike you heavily, right? Because I struggle with waking up. I, I am a chronic snoozer. Who in the room is a chronic snoozer? I think you should have to ask. There should be a form that you fill out before you get married to figure out if you're marrying a chronic snoozer, Right? How many of you set your alarm at least an hour before you have to wake up? (laughs) How unfair is that if you're married, right? You're getting up at like 6 in the morning and your spouse is like up at 5 just because you can't wake up, right? See, here's the truth about it is that for many of us, waking up, waking up is difficult. It's just not easy. So I want to take you to Ephesians 5. Look at this verse again. I want to remind you of a few things that attach itself to that. Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Christ will give you light. Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead. Here's the tension of waking and sleeping is not that of of being engaged or disengaged to life. It is that to being dead or alive. That that is exactly where the scriptures take us. The tension between death and life. And so when we talk about coming awake, it is not something that is comfortable. It is not something that's easy. And Ephesians 5 leads us right after that verse into a small little discourse on what that means to come awake. So let's look at that. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 15. So be careful how you live. All right, stop there. Here's what I want you to see. Is that living fully awakened 
or sleepwalking through life has this connection to how we live. It has this connection. The intentional choices that we make in life on how we're going to live are going to have this direct result to whether we live fully awakened or we sleepwalk through life. And I don't know if you get the context that death is not a good thing, right? We want to live alive. We want to live with, like we talked about last week, the quality that comes into life that is beyond living or breathing that fills us with what Jesus said he is, life. We want that. I want that every day. So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. I'm going to give you four keys that I think we find right there in that passage that show us how we go from living awakened to falling asleep. These really, we could say these are the four steps to falling asleep in life. And as we go through these, some of you are going to recognize I'm right there. I am that person. So let's get number one, step number one to falling asleep. We do not live carefully. We do not live carefully. The first word that that the Apostle Paul gives us there in Ephesians 5.15 is live carefully. Live intentionally. See, in life we have a, a designed life that God has made for us, but many of us, you know what I mean when I say this, we can live by design or we will live by default right we can live by design or we can live by default the default is what we fall back to right what is comfortable and easy many of you a few weeks ago made new year's resolutions to get healthier right how many of y'all know it's easier to eat bad Right, it's easier to go grab that pizza and eat six slices, right? Right, I did that Thursday night. Didn't go very well for me, all right? All right, it's easy to live by default, but design takes intentionality, right? To live that way. The Apostle Paul says, live carefully, right? And many of us choose not to live that intentional, designed life. We walk back into what's comfortable and easy. What is the default? Number two, we make foolish decisions. We make foolish decisions. He continues on, don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Now, ultimately, a fool is someone who says in their heart, there is no God. Right? That's who a fool is. Is someone who looks into the heart of God understands that there there possibly might be a different way, but says, nope, that's not real. That's that's the foolish decision. And the truth is, is that we make that decision in many ways. Not just in that grand kind of overarching decision where we say there is no God, but we look at our personal finances and go, yep, nope, God, your way won't work. We look at our relationships and realize that God's plan is that we be gracious and forgiving. And we go, nope, God, your way won't work. 
That's foolishness. Is living like there is no God. And we, when we make foolish decisions, and we start to make foolish decisions, the eyes of our heart start to grow sleepy. Number three, we bypass opportunities. Make the most of every opportunity in these days. That's what verse 16 says. We bypass opportunities. Can I just tell you something about opportunities? They're never easy or convenient. The life that God wants to give you is much more of an invitation than it is a provocation. Right? God is much more of a, of a, a guide who's saying, hey, I'm, I'm here. If you'll, if you'll follow me, here's, here's the way. Then follow me. Instead of the person behind us pushing us. God is constantly inviting us into opportunity. And if we're going to live fully awakened, we're going to embrace the opportunities that God gives us. Sometimes it's the opportunity to enjoy the grandeur of God. Sometimes it is the opportunity in the midst of a very difficult season to see God's faithfulness. But when we start to fall asleep, we bypass those opportunities. And number four, this is what ultimately will happen. We thoughtlessly reject God's way of living. Verse 17 says, do not act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. And I know that there are many of you in here today that say, that's, that's my prayer. That's what I want. I, I want to know what God wants me to do. I want to do that. But I don't feel like I do completely. I don't feel like I really get this. Can I just be vulnerable and honest with you, okay? A lot of times we want, we want something right now. We want the silver bullet, the roadmap. We want all of that. Something that would be the, the manual delivered into our hands. And while we have that in God's word, we have to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. And sometimes we exist in that tension between where our spiritual maturity is and what our desires are. And the thing I want you to understand today is that God wants to give you that way. God wants to give you that wisdom. God wants to, and one of the greatest mistakes we can ever make, one of the greatest mistakes that we'll ever make is getting to a point where we're living in that tension of desiring to hear from God desiring reconciliation, desiring whatever it is that we know God wants to give us, and then we say, nope, God doesn't want to give it to me. That we get to that place where we've longed for it, and it's a good thing, and we know that God wants to give it to us. But we get to that place where our hearts grow bitter, and the challenge of being patient and waiting becomes something that we don't want any part of. I want you to see this. James 1, 5. Look, God wants to give it to you. God wants to give you wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Isn't it good to know that our God, when we come to him just like a child coming to us and asking us as parents for advice, that our God doesn't judge us for being immature. He doesn't get mad at us because we didn't know. 
And we go to God and we say, God, I, I'm struggling with my, my boss at work and I feel like he's demanding so much from me that I can't be who I'm supposed to be at home for my family. God, what should I do? God, how should I do this? See, God doesn't look at us and go, you've been blowing it, you suck. God doesn't do that. God says, oh, thanks for asking. Thanks for asking. I know, I know that it's been a struggle, but let me, let me lead you in this. See, God wants to give to us. Look at Matthew 7. This is Jesus teaching, and he's comparing how God wants to give to us to the desires that we have as parents to give to our children. Look at what he says, Matthew 7, 11. If you then, though you are evil, that's not me calling you evil, that's Jesus, okay? Just <laughs> don't take it personally, all right? If you, though, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Oh, man, think about that with me. If you're that person that's in here and you have that broken relationship with a spouse or with a parent, if you're struggling at work and you know God's called you to something and it's different, if you're the person that's struggling with a, a past or forgiveness or grace, if you're struggling financially, isn't it good to know that our Father in Heaven knows how to give good gifts if we ask Him for them? But see, the thing is, I think we get confused about how God gives. As a matter of fact, we get confused about it as parents. I think that we, as a, a parenting culture, as it's emerged over the last 20 to 40 years, we've went away from a culture that teaches kids to earn things. And what we've started doing is just giving stuff to our kids outright and free. When I was a child, it happened through what we called an allowance. And I got an allowance. Many of you did too. What does an allowance teach you? That the world owes you money that you don't work for. That's what an allowance teaches you. This is why we coach parents not to give your kids allowances, but to let them work on commission. All right? Give them jobs around the house. Let them earn stuff. All right? See, a few months ago, we did a series called Roots, and I want to talk to you about how God really gives us so much of what he gives us. God invites us to be planted and rooted into him, to be planted in him. God, God wants us to be rooted in him and our lives to be, to be foundationally set in his ways in His strength, in His presence, that we would be rooted in Christ. And then what happens is when we're planted in Jesus, our lives begin to naturally produce fruit. See, we don't produce the fruit. We're rooted in Jesus. We're planted in Jesus. He would go so far as to say we're not even the tree, we're just kind of the branch of the tree. And if we're rooted in God, God begins to produce the fruit. See, the thing is, is that most of us want God to give us that healthy marriage without us being rooted in Jesus. We just want to go home and all the slate to be wiped clean, everything to be perfect, right? Silver bullet, God, shoot it and make it all better. But that's not how the things of God work. God wants us to be planted in him. And when we're planted in him, when we're living his life out, well, it naturally produces 
what he wants to give us. And it will. When we live the financial lives that he wants us to do, when we're generous and faithful to give, when we, all of those things, God blesses us. Right? When we're gracious and forgiving, when we forgive our enemies, what happens? God is gracious and forgiving to us. Isn't that the part of the Lord's Prayer that none of us like, right? Forgive me as I forgive those who sin against me. <laughs> Isn't that, right? But when we live it out, when we're planted in God, God is faithful to produce that fruit in us. So I want you to see what the Bible describes as that fruit that our lives will produce. It's found in Galatians 5. We call it the fruit of the Spirit. Look at this. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There is no law against these things. So today, what I want to do, and over the next few weeks, we're going to zero in on some of the things that God wants to give us that we in our hearts need to be awakened to. Because we have, just like we talked about, grown weary, grown asleep to the things that God wants to give us. See, I think that many of us are living lives that are without joy. And it's one of those things that as we read through the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, it's, it's like almost at the front of the list, right? It's so important, so pivotal to the life that God wants us. Look at what Proverbs 8 says. Pull that scripture up for me. And so, my children, listen to me. For all who follow my ways, all who follow my ways are joyful. Listen to my instruction and be wise. Don't ignore it. Joyful are those who listen to me. Watching for me daily at my gates. Watching for me outside my home. You see, joy is something that is pivotal. And it's promised. And many of us are living lives that are absent of the kind of joy that God wants to give us. The truth is that many of us have sabotaged our lives so that we can't experience that kind of joy. We live in a world that has isolated so much of the negative experience, what we describe as the negative experience of life. And we've tried to isolate it and remove it. Oh, here's a bad experience. Well, I have a lot of tension with that person, so I will cut them out of my life. I'm really struggling with this part of my life, so what I'm going to do is I'm not even going to pay it any attention. I'm going to focus on these things that are positive, the things that make me feel better about myself. We've created a culture that runs from things that are difficult. We run, we run from negative emotions. We run from things that are going, not going to be easy. And I love what researcher Brene Brown says about the way that we approach negative and positive feelings. Look at this. We cannot selectively numb emotions. When we numb the painful emotions, we also numb the positive ones. You see, many of us don't realize that in the effort to try to take those negative experiences out of life and wash them away and get them, what we've created is a flatline life. It's similar to the experience that engineers were having in Chicago 
in the 19th century. See, in the 19th century, cities all over the United States were beginning to, for the first time ever, install sewer systems. And we're thankful for sewer systems today, aren't we? <laughs> all right? That should just get a big amen from all of us. We're thankful for toilets, right? But in the 19th century, it, it, it wasn't that way. And Chicago faced a very significant issue. See, Chicago, built right off the shore of Lake Michigan, was virtually flat. Virtually flat. Now, unlike cities like San Francisco, where the streets would, would be filled with rain and would wash away, Chicago didn't experience that. And think about this. Not only did they deal with the leftovers from food and all the things that would be human waste, if we gathered together like this in the 19th century, you know how you would have gotten here? Not on a car. Our cars have emissions, right? They have carbon sort of emissions, right? You would have gotten here on a horse. And horses have their own version of emissions, all right? So imagine a city that's growing with thousands of people, thousands of horses, and nowhere for any of it to go. Nowhere. A city that's absolutely flat. In the mid-19th century, Chicago fa faced uh, three different uh, epidemics that killed off almost 5% of the population. See, typhoid, dysentery. If you ever played Oregon Trail, you know those are bad news, right? <laughs> typhoid, dysentery is never a good sign, right? All right? And so what the engineers realized is that if we're going to build a sewer system, we cannot leave the city the way it is. So they came up with this radical idea. They took jacks and raised the city five feet. It's called the raising of Chicago. They literally went house by house, building by building, street by street. This is a picture of what was happening, where they went underneath these huge areas and put thousands and thousands of jacks, just like the jacks we have in our cars, that we raise up on one side. And they, using thousands of men, would at one time jack up a building five feet, and they built the sewer at ground level. See, I think that many of us are facing lives that look a lot like Chicago before it was ever raised. The junk in our life has nowhere to go because we've tried to create a flatline life. We've tried to wash out the bad things in life, and we know that they're bad, but we've isolated ourselves and kept ourselves from experiencing real joy. The first thing that I want you to see today is that joy and trials are really two sides of the same coin. Joy and trials are two sides of the same coin. When my wife was pregnant with our son, Clay, she kind of had this revelation that Clay was going to be this kid that was going to be filled with joy. And I, I think that both of us thought, you know, that means that he's going to be the happy kid. Because our daughter was so easy, so fun. Y'all ever had the first kid that's really easy and fun? And then you have the second one that makes you wish you would stop having kids because they're so hard. <laughs> that's who Clay is. Clay's like either thoroughly happy or thoroughly angry. 
Like he's either so in love with you or wants nothing to do with you. It's the two sides of a coin. And as I've watched him emerge in his little two and a half years, I realize that you can't have one without the other. And really the Bible makes that connection. Look at what James 1, 2 says. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. What? Now, we've read that verse, but I want you to see that verse as it really should be read. So I'm in the middle of a trial, and I should have joy. I'm in the middle of a difficult season, and I should have joy. How are those two actually connected? That doesn't make sense. That is absolutely counterintuitive. No, I should count it all joy when I don't have any trials. That's when I should be counting it all joy. But the Bible's connecting those two things. John sixteen thirty three. This is Jesus speaking. In this world, you will have oppression. And other versions would say, just get ready. You will have trouble. But cheer up. Be happy. Find joy. Because I have overcome the world. You see, part of our mistake with joy is that we've created a synonym between joy and happiness. And the thing I want you to see, this is number two, joy is not happiness. Joy is not happiness. Happiness is a moving target. Happiness is a moving target. We often say, well, I'll be happy when I get to that place. Or, you know, and we, we oftentimes, say, let's just be honest, right? We're in that season of making New Year's resolutions and I'll be happy when I get to this weight or when I get to this weight or when I get to this weight or I'll be happy when I've saved this much money or this much money or I'll be happy when I get to this position in my career. And the truth is, is that when we get there, there's another place left to go beyond that. It's a moving target. But joy, joy is so different than that. Joy is a lasting product. It goes beyond the moment. It transcends our circumstance. While happy is very circumstantial, joy is not based on our circumstances. Number three, our joy is connected to our closeness with God. Our joy is deeply connected to how close we are to God. See, many of us have thought about joy as a circumstantial thing, which is why when we read a verse that says, count it all joy when you go through trials, we go, no, I cannot count it all joy when I go through trials because that's a bad circumstance. But joy has nothing to do with our circumstances. It has everything to do with how close we are to God. You see, many of us, if you're not there now, you have been. And if you're not there now, you're probably going to be before it's too long. Have been through some significant trials before. We remember what it's like to feel like in our lives we're laying face down in the mud. You ever been there? You ever been there? You ever felt like, like right now in life, I'm just laying face down in the mud. Like I'm a failure. I'm no good. I've fallen. I'm worthless. Look what the Bible says. In Psalm 40, verse 2, he lifted me out of the pit of despair. Out of the mud, out of the mire, he lifted me 
out. See, I think many of our lives look like Chicago in the 19th century. We've flatlined and we're laying in the mud. And I think that those, those engineers, they were onto something. I asked my friend Eric, who's a, a plumber, comes to church here. I said, Eric, can you give me the one irrefutable law of plumbing? <laughs> and he said, yeah, it's real simple. It always flows downhill. It. I'm not going to tell you what the it is, but it always flows downhill. He lifted me out. He lifted me out. Just as that city was raised. You see, God, as he draws us closer to himself, God lifts us out of that pit. His closeness, that's where the source of our joy is found. Because he is the one in charge of our circumstances. He is the one who's writing the story. We just get to be the pen that he uses. And so it's my prayer today that God would wake us up to the joy that we can find when we fully surrendered ourselves to him. In every circumstance, no matter how we rate it on the scale of happiness, that we can live with joy. Because here's the thing. The world will notice the people who are in the middle of a difficult season and filled with joy. The world will notice that. That's a living testimony of our faith in Him. There's one more thing I want you to see about joy. Our joy increases as we share what God has given us. You see, joy is only born out of the reality in our heart that understands that what we have, God has given it to us. God has given it to us. I was planted in Him. He produced it through me. And see, Jesus says something after he goes through that whole teaching about I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever remains in me, I in him, you will produce much fruit. He says this in John 15. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Jesus says, hey, it's my joy to take what I've been given and given it to you. In my giving, my joy, my joy becomes your joy. See, here's the thing. We live in a world that is absence of real, authentic joy. There's a lot of fake happiness out there, but real joy. And it's your job to go share the things that God has given you to be generous and watch as God shares joy through you. It's my prayer that God would wake us up to the reality that whether we're in the bottom of the pit or we're on the top of the mountain, that He is with us, that we can trust Him, that He is faithful to us and will remain faithful to us. It's my prayer that as God wakes us up, his presence, that that joy will become a lasting testimony, not just to 
to us as we see God moving, but to, but to see that testimony spread through the people that we love. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for being present with us today. God, some of us come in facing some of the greatest challenges we've ever faced in life. And some of us today, God, we come in riding the top of a wave that has felt like we are just living in the presence of your glory. And today, God, we just ask you that by your grace and mercy, you would wake us up. God, we realize that being awoken is, is, not, is not easy. It's not comfortable. We got, we got to who we are. God, we got there because we were living comfortable lives. So God, make us uncomfortable. God, wake us up to the reality that your presence is with us. God, that you won't leave us alone. That whether we're in the midst of difficulty or in the midst of greatness, God, we can rest in your presence and your desire. So with every head bowed, every eye closed, let me, let me ask you a question today. How close are you to God? How close are you? You see, the joy that you're living with is deeply connected to how close you are to Him. There are some of us today that when we ask that question and honestly answer it inside of our heads, we know that we're a million miles from God today. Maybe somebody's hurt you. Maybe you've been through a difficult few weeks, few months, few years. But God today is a million miles away from you, and it's not His fault. It's because you haven't been living the way He wants you to. So if you're here and you know God is a million miles away from you today, but you want, you want that life. You want to come awake to His presence. You want to come awake to the life that He wants to live through you. Raise your hand right now. Who else? Who else? Awesome. So God, for those hands that just went up, God, we ask you today that you would help us Help us to take that step, to rely on you, to look to you, to live out your plan, God, as Proverbs 8 says, to be the person who finds the joy that only comes when we rest our lives in who you want us to be. So God, for some of us in the room today, that means being forgiving when we've been holding on to bitterness. For some of us, that means that we need to become generous when we've been hoarding. God, for some of us today, it means that we, for the first time in our life, need to rely on your wisdom and not our own. Whatever it is, God, lead us. With every head still bowed, I want to ask one question. This is for everybody, all right? How many of you would say, hey, whether you're a follower of Jesus, new to it, how many of you would say that I, I need to be awakened to the presence of God in my life a little bit more? Raise your hand if that's you. I just, I just need to be awakened to God's presence in, in my life. So God, for those who, who need to encounter you, 
God, those who are saying, hey, I'm asleep. I need to come more awake to your presence in my life. God, help us to sense when you're working in us. That for your good, for your glory, for your name, you may work in our hearts and in our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.